As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to, to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 4. As you're turning to the book of Acts, let me begin by maybe refreshing some of your, your memories into, towards church history. In 1951, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was summoned by the emperor to appear before a council called the Diet of Worms. There, the authorities would determine what they would do with his teachings and ultimately what they would do with him. He had challenged the corruption of the Catholic Church, and he had challenged the doctrine that was prevalent at the time, mainly salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He was denounced by the church and by many as a heretic, and he was told repeatedly that he should recant, that he should take back the teachings that he was propagating. But Martin Luther didn't see any proof against his theses, the 95 theses that he had written to articulate his faith, his belief in what the Bible taught. None of these had been sufficiently refuted. No views had been given that would cause him to recant from where he stood. Though his life was on the line and though the threats to his life were incredibly real, he stood before the council and he made this statement in 1522. He said, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. He ended with these final words. God help me. Amen. Though his courageous stand in the face of opposition is greatly admired and should be and it is greatly respected and should be it does, not a st- it does not stand alone in the history of the church. There have been many in the history of the church who have had to take a stand for what is true and what is right in the face of fierce and intense opposition. Every church and every generation must be aware of the battle that is raging all around us. The tides can quickly turn against the church. The gospel and the truth of God's word can quickly become out of season as Paul framed it. At one point, the church can be loved and respected and literally overnight, it can be hated and despised. Peter and John are thrust into instant opposition simply for healing a crippled man and for declaring the power of Jesus Christ that has accomplished this miracle. They've been placed in prison overnight awaiting a council that will determine the validity of what they're saying. Really, they will be ignored and pushed aside and they will be told that they too must recant, so to speak, and they must abandon these teachings, that they must declare them no more to anyone. And they remind us that to be a Christian requires great courage. And so I want our hearts to be reminded and let's look together At Acts chapter 4, we'll pick up at verse 13. It says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them in and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Courageous Christianity is essential. Courageous Christianity is to be the norm. It is one of the callings of the Christian life to not shrink back from the world, to not shrink back from opposition, but to stand and confront the opposition. Courageous Christianity Christianity requires great commitment on behalf of followers of Christ and on behalf of the church. And today we're seeing that it is not uncommon for churches to lack courage and Christians to lack courage and for many to capitulate, for many to veer away from what they know to be true and especially to veer away from speaking what is true. If we embrace certain commitments, I believe the Bible is clear that we will experience God's power working in and through us. So the question is, if this is what we are longing for as a church, if we are longing to see God's power at work in our lives and through our lives, what are these commitments? The first commitment we see is this, we will not be self-confident. We will not be self-confident. In verse 13, I, I almost just want to preach this verse all by itself. It's so powerful. But I need to preach more, so hang on. It's so, so striking. It says now when they saw the boldness, I want you to notice there's three things that are noted here about Peter and John. Their boldness, and then they were perceived that they were uneducated common men. Their commonness says that they were astonished, and they recognized, I want you to see this most of all, that they had been with Jesus. Their confidence is clear. These men are facing very serious threats, very serious opposition. They have offended the religious elite and the political elite, and yet here we see that they have not shrinked back, but they stand before them and they declare the truth to such a point that they even look at their accusers, they look at their opposition, and they say, I know you're religious, I know you think you know God, I know you think you have a corner on the truth, but you too must bow the knee to Jesus Christ, the one you crucified. This is unbelievable courage. Confidence in the Christian life is crucial, but where we find that confidence is most important. Our confidence doesn't flow from our self-worth. It doesn't flow from some kind of identity we fabricate or manufacture for ourselves. What we see here is that this confidence flows only from Jesus Christ. So I just want to pick these things apart really quickly. We'll notice first this confidence is a result of, of boldness. Boldness is a willingness to express one's opinion freely. 
And in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, this meant, uh, in the secular sense, in a political manner, to have the sense of freedom of speech, to, to be able to, to come along and say what you really believe, regardless of the dangers. It implies a straightforwardness that could expose you to potential personal danger. It implies that there could be great negative reactions, and so it, it carries inherently this sense of courage, of all audacity, and of confidence. In Acts, one commentator says this, that boldness describes the openness of the mission proclamation in the sense of fearlessness and candor and joyous confidence over and against the critics and adversaries. This becomes the, the, the normal sort of confident approach of the church of Jesus Christ. And opposition is only getting started here in the book of Acts. It's only going to ramp up from here. It's only going to get more challenging. The context of verse 8 really suggests for us that this boldness is a result of being filled with the Spirit. Look at verse 8. It's been a little while since we were in this text, but... This will help refresh our memory. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the reason Peter is standing up with such courage. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and he speaks truth to them. And notice what he says again, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This whole apologetic, this whole defense of the truth flows out of an initial filling of the Spirit of God by which they boldly confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was wrongfully accused and executed, and that he had been vindicated through the resurrection from the dead. That his continuing power had healed the lame man and that salvation is possible only through Jesus and through loyalty, faith to him, in him. I think it's important that we understand that, listen, when we are filled with the Spirit, we will be compelled to speak the truth about Jesus Christ. If our pursuit, and we've looked at this in the past, if our pursuit is, is to be filled with the Spirit of God through obedience to His Word, then we will be, I think the implication, listen, we will be compelled to speak about Jesus Christ. Boldness and courage flow from an unshakable conviction about the truth. If you believe firmly with all your heart that this is true, that this is the only truth, you cannot help but share it. This courage is so remarkable and so astonishing, and it evokes this astonishment amongst the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees that are surrounding these men. They don't know what to do with them, and that's because of the second re reason here, their commonness. I mean, these men are nobodies, essentially. And that's what the text tells us. They're common men. They were uneducated. Apparently, it was very obvious to them 
It wasn't something that was easily hid or masked. These men just, they looked, they sounded like common uneducated men. It was clearly perceived that these guys were nothing special. They were nobody important. But the shock and astonishment comes from the reality that they were speaking so boldly and persuasively. I mean, only people who were educated in this culture, only people who were recognized as some kind of authority could speak with such boldness, or so they thought. The results were speaking for themselves. I mean, people were flocking to hear them. This man had been healed, this this lame man. Uneducated here does not mean illiterate or unlearned. It means simply that they're not trained as interpreters of Scripture in the rabbinic traditions. They hadn't been schooled in the rabbinic schools. And so they're being viewed as amateurs who are unskilled. And and a lot of the emphasis here is unskilled in rhetorical ability, in their, their skills of speech. And yet, the amazement at the effectiveness and the ability to communicate is acknowledged here wholesale. They can't figure out how these guys can do what they're doing, can have the impact that they're having. And I I love to think about this because, you know, if if we were going to pick an all-star team that's going to pack the greatest punch for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who would we select? Just go to a Christian conference and you'll see, right? I mean, you're going to pick the big name, really powerful, you know, well-to-do, the ones who seem to have it all together, the ones with the best education. They seem like they're the elite in the society because they'll have the greatest hearing, right? And yet when God picks his team, you know, you think of that schoolyard pick, you know, we go after the ones who seem to be the best, right? Our team, we go after the best first. You know who God seems to go after most often? The worst, I mean, like, just think about that. If you're the person who gets picked last, listen, that's good in God's economy, okay? Like, God's like, I'll take you, thank you, and you. They're like, oh, great, I'd never even get picked. I've never played before. This is the way that God seems to work in his kingdom. This isn't to say, listen, this isn't to say that God doesn't use people who are considered elite in society, that God doesn't use people who are, who are in positions of power and influence. That's not saying that, okay? Thankfully, God can use anybody. But God loves to use those who are considered lesser and weaker. Those who are considered weak and feeble and frail. I mean, you just consider the disciples for a minute. None of these guys had a whole lot going for them. They owned a fishing business, a couple of them. They were common, you know, blue-collar workers, Everyday laborers, they weren't wealthy, they weren't rich, they didn't come from good stock. The Apostle Paul, you say, you say, really, does God really usually work this way, picking the weaker, the lesser? Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Be on the screen. Who does God choose for his team? For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. I love this, I love this, just listen. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You say, why? Why does God do this? Why does God take the lesser things and kind of shame the wise, shame those who, and here's the point, God God wants to shame those who think much of themselves, those who think that they are somehow worthy of being in God's presence, of earning God's affection and favor. Look at this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God says, I don't need you to be great. This is encouraging. Listen, church, this is so, so important for us to grasp. He said, so many of us strive to try and make ourselves somebody or something so that we might be useful to God. And God says, I don't need you to be great. I don't need you to be a somebody. I need you to believe that I'm great. Commonness seems to be what God commonly chooses to work with. All the disciples, listen, deeply flawed, painfully ordinary, but listen, here's the key, fully available. Here comes Jesus walking along, sees these guys, you know, with their fishing nets and says, hey guys, come on and follow me. And what do they do? What do they do? They drop their nets, they drop their fishing gear, they drop everything and they go and follow Jesus. If you're taking notes, just write this down. God doesn't want your adequacy, he wants your availability. God doesn't want your adequacy, he wants your availability. And this is so great because so many of us are so stuck going like, well, I just, I don't know if I can be used by God. I don't have really good skill sets. I'm not, I I can't speak very well. I don't have much to offer. I won't have the right words to say. I, I don't have all the answers to people's questions and God's wanting you to know this. Look, it doesn't matter if you're adequate. You're not adequate. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? Look at the screen, 2 Corinthians 2.15. And 16 says, for we were, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Here it is. To one a fragrance from death to death, to other a fragrance from life to life. And then Paul recognizes this about his own ministry. Who's sufficient for these things? I mean, really, like, really? This is the call to be a fragrance, an aroma of life to life, to be used by God, to bring life to some, and to be used by God as I preach the gospel and I live out the gospel in my life, that some people are gonna hate it and reject it. Like, who is sufficient for such a task as this? And Paul's like, nobody. Nobody, nobody but God alone. Usefulness is not about your adequacy. It is all about your availability. We can have confidence despite our commonness. Why? Because we believe with all our hearts that God is adequate. That God works through weak, frail, cracked, flawed vessels to bring himself greater and greater glory. And if we have him, we are adequate. That's the awesome news. And this adequacy flows, the greater sense of your adequacy in Christ, it flows from this next point. Do you see what the text says? I love this. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that awesome? It comes from a closeness, a relational closeness to Jesus Christ. And these, these men are like, how are they doing these things? How, how are they speaking like this? How are they having such an impact? And, and now they suddenly, in an instant, they recognize that these men had been with Jesus all along. 
And it's not the kind of, you know, kind of remembering, oh, these guys were disciples. It's kind of, you have to see it. The, the Greek, the, the construction is showing that this is a, a cause and effect relationship. Oh, it's like this. Oh, they're so effective and they're doing what they're doing the way they're doing it because they had been with Jesus. And he was like that too. Do you see the picture? They realized who their master had been and the influence that he had had on them. And Jesus himself, right, had not been professionally trained. And yet he was widely acknowledged as a rabbi or a teacher, one who taught with great authority, the scriptures tell us. Peter and John had obviously been taught by Jesus and they shared something of his wisdom, his insight into the scriptures and his prophetic authority. Right, for three years, the disciples had gone to the best seminary in the world. They had learned from Jesus, and now the Holy Spirit had been given to them, and the power of God's Spirit was unleashing the truth of God's Word through them, the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ. This was, after all, why Jesus called these men in the first place. It says in Mark 3.14, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they, I love this, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. You see the connection, being with Christ and being prepared to be sent out is so, so key to the Christian life. They are speaking and acting as Jesus did. And I mean, have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed this maybe with your kids? I, I notice this right now, especially as my kids are getting a little bit older, particularly with my daughter, but they become like the people they spend time with. Like my daughter will come home and all of a sudden she's speaking a language I've never heard before, right? Everything is, I know, right? I know, right? I know, right? It's like little seven-year-old girl language, apparently. And, 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 and I'm like, where, where, where's we're sitting? Like, where are you? Why are you talking like this? Well, that's the way my friends talk, right? Like, all she wanted for Christmas was Shopkins. Like, if you don't know what that, that is, that's okay. Trust me, all right? I'm still like, really? Why do you want those? All my friends have them. They're so great. You see, it's, it's amazing. We notice it in our kids. They begin to act like those who they spend time around. That's why as parents, we're very protective of who our kids spend time around, right? And we ought to be. My kids aren't allowed to choose their friends right now. I'm not kidding. You laugh. I choose my kids' friends. I'm serious. And parents, listen, at a young age, you should too. We need to teach them how to make these kind of decisions because, uh, listen, bad con company ruins good morals. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. We, we know that. We've heard that quoted to us by our parents a million times, right? Listen, if that's true, and it is because it's in the Bible, listen, we know that the, conversely, listen, good con company will build up good morals. The people we hang around, and we, know this we notice this less in our lives, but you know, what we, we'll use, we'll, you'll notice this, the same vocabulary as the people you hang around the most, the same intonation in your voice. You'll begin to have some of the same likes and dislikes as the people you hang around most. And, and that's a good sign, listen, because it reminds us that when we spend time with Jesus Christ, he begins to rub off on us. The closeness in our relationship to Christ is so, so critical and I am convinced, and I've seen this in others, and Lord, I, I pray, I, I continue to see this in my life, but we will live and speak like Jesus much when we are with him much. It is our closeness to Jesus that will determine our likeness to Jesus, which will dictate our effectiveness for Jesus. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, think about any relationship you have. 
I mean, the principle is the same. You know, and we, don't, we don't have this cold, distant, religious perspective on, on Christianity. We are in a, a loving, warm, vibrant, Lord, well, you should be, relationship with the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. And this relation, like every relationship, has certain pieces that if they're missing, if they're taken out, the relationship isn't going to flourish. It's not going to culminate to what it ought to be. And so just a few just points of application. You want to work on the closeness of your relationship. Every relationship needs time. If you are not devoting time to your relationship with Jesus, you cannot expect that relationship to flourish and grow. And so if you have to use a calendar to schedule that time in, if you have to use reminders and warnings and tell people in your life, can you ask me about this all the time? Get time alone with God. Get time alone with God. What should that time look like? Well, it should be a time of learning. A time of learning. We need to be deep in the word. The word of God is the word of Jesus Christ. It is the very means God has given us to not only establish, but to deepen our relationship with him. There we get to learn all about who he is, all about what he's done. And the more, hopefully like your spouse, the more you get to know of them, the more you fall in love with them. So it is with Jesus Christ. Communicating. You need to be communicating. Every healthy relationship needs communication, right? And yet how slow we are to communicate with God. I read a convicting quote this week um, by Tim Keller, and I'll just paraphrase it, but he said, we are quick to get to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and slow to spend time in prayer with God. I can tell by the silence you're convicted too. We need to be putting off some habits in our lives if we are going to be spending more time in quality communication with God. And then we need to be living out these things. We need to be putting into practice, putting off the old habits, putting on the new man in Jesus Christ. And I just, I love this. It should be obvious to others that you have been with Jesus. And if it's not, if it's not, then that should be a wake-up call to you this morning that you are not spending the time with Jesus that you need to be spending If people can't look at you and start seeing the character and life of Christ being manifested in you more and more, then then that's a massive problem in the Christian life and you're limiting the joy and you're limiting the effectiveness for Christ in your life. Here it's so obvious that they had been with Christ. Our confidence and courage does not come from self. It is found in Jesus Christ, amen? That is the place we must find our confidence. Secondly, note this, we will not be, be scared. We will not be self-confident and we will not be scared. You'll notice what happens next. These men, again, are astonished. The leaders are astonished at what's taking place. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, obviously this man had either been brought in or he had maybe been imprisoned overnight or, or as well, not knowing what to do with them. Here he is. He's standing beside them. They had nothing to say in opposition Now catch the irony here. The man who was healed was standing beside them. This is a man, as the text tells us, who had been sitting, lying down for 40 years of his life. I bet they have nothing to say. The only other time this uh, this word standing, excuse me, this term nothing to say uh, was used 
this kind of silencing is, is used as a, as a verb in the New Testament. Is, is Jesus speaking in Luke 21, verse 15. Here's what he says. He says, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Promise from Jesus to his disciples. Here it is being fleshed out right here. The apostles have made it clear that this is God's power at work. It's been done by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, he says to them. By this man, this, by, by him, this man is standing before you well. And just a, a real quick side note here. The Greek word for resurrection, such an important theological term in the, the Christian worldview, the resurrection, that term is anastasis in the Greek. And I tell you that because of this, just, just listen to this. The basic part of this word anastasis, the root word of this is stasis, which means standing. To the Greek mind, resurrected people were people who were standing up as opposed to lying down. And, and I'm not trying to inject something into the text that's not there. I just find it incredibly fascinating that, that Luke chooses to use this word that's the very same word for resurrection as he's speaking about this man. It reminds us, I think, listen, that this man was a symbol of the very gospel that Peter and John were proclaiming. At any rate, they send them out so they can figure out what to do with them. Verse 16, saying, what shall we do with these men for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. I mean, these guys are confused. They're between a rock and a hard place. How do we handle something like this? Remember, it's threatening their authority. It's threatening their beliefs. It's threatening what they had done to Jesus Christ. It's exposing them as being in the wrong. So here's what they decide, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They do essentially what the state always does when they're confronted with this kind of opposition. They resort to a blanket kind of authority. They simply insist, don't do this anymore. You're not allowed. They can't deny that something incredible and supernatural has happened. I mean, everybody is seeing it, but they have to navigate through this carefully so that there's not an uprising, there's not a revolt amongst the people. What they can't have is, is the, the knowledge of this miracle spreading, but more importantly, they can't have this connection that the power source behind it being made known or being propagated. They can't have the name of Jesus being on center stage. So they make it clear that they will warn them. Now that word warn can also be translated threaten. It's used in 1 Peter 2, 23, where Jesus says when he suffered, he did not threaten, but, in, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's not a soft term in any way. It's a term of intimidation. And what's so fascinating here is rather than embrace the truth, rather than even try to understand the truth, they attempt to shut it all down with intimidation. And this intimidation is only intensified when we get to verse 21. They threaten them further and threaten to punish them. I mean, they're leveling consequences. If you guys keep this up, there's going to be trouble. They want nothing to do with Jesus 
They'll punish anybody who proclaims the name of Jesus. And they're going to follow through on these threats, by the way. We'll see that as the book of Acts unfolds. They shut down essentially freedom of speech. They can't refute it, and they certainly don't like it, so they simply threaten those who convey this message. And I think we're beginning to see similar things happen in our culture, aren't we? We're beginning to see a clamping down, an intolerance towards Christian convictions and biblical truth. We're seeing it in all sorts of arenas. We're seeing it politically. We're seeing it, I believe, in the school system. In fact, right before Christmas, one of my cousin's children in a public school in Oshawa, her son is nine years old, he was in a class just before Christmas, and the teacher was kind of talking through some of the holiday traditions and talking about a candy cane and and and. Um, my cousin's son had just learned kind of the, the, the Christian myth, because it's not based in reality, but sorry to burst your bubble, that the candy cane was created to kind of symbolize, you know, the red color, the, the blood of Jesus Christ, and the white, the cleansing effect of Jesus Christ. And he was so excited that he had learned this in his home, and so his teacher's talking about a candy cane, and he says, oh, I know what this means. And so he stands up and he tells his class, nine years old, that the Christian message of the gospel, Really? And the teacher says, you need to sit down and you're not allowed to talk about Jesus anymore. And if you do, you're going to be in big trouble and you're going to have to write an apology letter to the entire class. I mean, it's happening. People will try and intimidate you. And I think, you know, fortunately, still in our country, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, that the worst that can happen, as we talk about this all the time, the worst that can happen to us is people will intimidate us. Um, you know, maybe your, your reputation is on the line. Maybe they'll make fun of you. You know, maybe you'll lose friends. Maybe you'll lose your job. But that really right now is the worst of it for us in this culture, right? There are Christians around the world who are losing their lives right now for following Jesus Christ. There are Christians around the world who are being forced out of house and home. There are Christians around the world who are having their possessions taken away from them. There are Christians around the world who are being punished because they believe in Jesus Christ. Are you willing? Are you willing to lose everything for Jesus? I mean, just really personally right now, forget about about your life. Are you willing to lose your reputation for Jesus? I think that's the thing we want to protect most in this culture. What people think of me Paul writes to Timothy, who's facing incredible opposition in the church in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 1.7, he says this. It's on the screen behind me. Paul has to help him, help this, his young protege. He says, look, God, has, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Christians, we need not fear. And one of the declarations and commitments we need to make is we will not be scared. We will not be scared by the intimidation and by the threats that are thrown at us. In fact, we will be willing to give it all up and gladly for the cause of Jesus Christ. Third, we need to be committed to this. We will not be silenced. We will not be silenced. Verse 18 says, so they called them back in, and again, remember this large council, this Sanhedrin, quite a number of men and elders in the community, those of significant position and power and authority, and they charged them, this is strong terminology, they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Jesus. 
They have sought to intimidate them, and their goal is to utterly silence them. Make no mistake about it, there is a time coming for the church of Jesus Christ where we, the attempt will be made to silence us. But the response from the disciples is so powerful, and it's so winsome, and it's so wise, and it's a great reminder, an example, listen, of how we ought to face opposition. We need not get angry. We need not to have these outbursts. And you, you see these Christians, I, just, I saw a, a, on some a media outlet this week of Christians just angrily picketing certain things that they have no business picketing, and it's a, a shame and a mockery to Jesus Christ. There are wise and winsome ways to go about standing up for what we believe in, that's for sure. And here what they do is they they just, I love this, I mean in their context is very important to understand. They're talking to Jewish people. They're talking to those who say they believe the word of God. They're talking to those who say they believe and they worship God Almighty, Yahweh himself. And so they turn the tables on them. And I imagine the tone of Peter is, is very appropriate in this setting. I don't think he's angry here. I think he's very confident in the Lord. And Peter and John, both of them together, you know, they, they answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Hey, you, you decide. You tell us what's better. Should we submit to you or should we submit to God? You see what he said? He's, he's forcing them to contradict what they say they believe. He's forcing them to have to grapple with the reality that they're living in rebellion to God, that they're not submitting to God, that they love self, not God. They force the council members into the role of being judges against themselves. It's brilliant. And every faithful Jew knew the answer to this question. You determine, who, who is it right to serve, you or God? Who should we listen to, you or God? I mean, biblical history highlights examples of those who experienced conflict between God's will and the will of human beings. And in every case, guess who wins out? I mean, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus were told by the governing authorities, when every male child comes out of the womb, take that child and slaughter that child. Guess what they chose to do? Obey God. When Daniel, one of the elite in his culture and society, politically speaking, at the top of the top, when he was told that you cannot bow down to your God, you cannot pray to your God anymore, and if you do, you will be thrown in a pit of lions, guess who he chose to obey? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow down and worship a false God, lest they be thrown into a blazing furnace of fire, guess whom they chose to obey? In every case, the answer is clear. God must be obeyed rather than human authorities. And that's what the disciples make clear in verse 21. Verse 20 and 21, he says, I love this, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's verse 20. We can't help it. You don't don't understand. We have seen the truth. You know, some of you in here, you're unbelievers. You you don't know God. and, and, And maybe one of the things you're trying to figure is why do Christians believe so firmly in, in what they believe in? And, and why do they feel like they have to tell me about it all the time, right? Like some of you, I know, you have friends who are just, they're incessant it feels like, and they're trying to get you to church, and they're trying to tell you about Jesus, and you're like, why is this such a big deal? Because we cannot but help speak of what we have seen and heard, what we have believed, what we know to be true. And we have to tell people about it because we believe what's at stake is so significant, what's at stake is eternal. 
And in your life, your soul, your joy, everything depends upon this, upon this person, Jesus Christ, upon what he did in dying on a cross 2,000 years ago and rising from the grave. All of human history centers around this, this one thing. It can be difficult to determine how we ought to respond to the governing authorities over us. Some years ago, when Francis Schaeffer was still alive, this well-known Christian apologist, he published a book called A Christian Manifesto. In it, he said in clear language that in certain circumstances, Christians are actually obliged to disobey the state. A lot of evangelicals at the time were outraged. They said, uh, we need to obey the state. God has established the authorities that exist in Romans, it tells us very clearly that God has established all of the governing authorities that exist, that we are called to submit to the authorities, and consequently, he who rebels against the authority is a rebel, or is, excuse me, rebelling against God himself. I mean, Peter even says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And at that time, the emperor was Nero, who was wreaking havoc, oh Jesus, wrecking the church, torching Christians for his garden parties on spears, lighting them aflame. And yet here he is saying, look, we need, to, we need to submit ourselves to governing authorities. How do we wrestle with this conflict or this seeming conflict? This is not a call to rebel against authorities without true biblical precedent. I think our default mechanism in our sinful flesh is to just instantly rebel against those who oppose us. We don't resent the government. We see them as being a true gift from God. But when they ask us, here's the key, when they ask us to do what is wrong, sinful, and unbiblical, the choice is simple. When the state tells us that we cannot preach the gospel, that is an overextension of its authority. It is an illegitimate use of its legitimate authority. And we must, we have no other choice but to resist and trust God. We must, therefore, as followers of Christ, be determined in our hearts that we will not be silent. Church, this is, our, this is our goal, right? This is our duty. We've been sent for this purpose. We cannot be silent, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Right now, too many Christians are capitulating. They're running away. They're giving in, and it's time. It's time that we speak up about Jesus Christ. It's time that we speak up with love and compassion. By the way, we accept the consequences, don't we? No? Anybody? Yeah, do we accept the consequences? I'll throw you into a den of lions. Then throw me in. Roll the stone over. Take my body. Take my life. I will not fear those who can destroy the body only. I will fear the one who can destroy body and soul. Here's the hope we cling to, regardless of the consequences we might face. We will not be stopped. We will not be stopped. This is, this is such a sweet kind of end to this little section here. 
I mean, to declare this truth with such courage, with such boldness. And then it says, and when they had further threatened them, like they're just, they're not done, right? They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. I love this. For all were praising God for what had happened. I mean, there's, there's, there's people who have seen this miracle and they cannot deny that God is at work, that God is making something known. And the authorities are so angered, but they just can't stop this message and these men from going forth. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is, the implication here is this. This is only explainable because of God, the one and only true God. And all the people are seeing this. Even the leaders aren't denying this necessarily. And I just think this is such an incredible reminder that human opposition cannot thwart God's power. What a confidence booster for us. While Jesus is dismissed and rejected by many, he will be embraced and praised by many. Even though we face the fiercest of opposition and it will intensify, God will still rally people to himself. He will still redeem lost sinners who will begin to praise him for all that he is and all that he's done. The healing is a sign of the power of Jesus who was crucified but who had been risen from the dead. That's what this is pointing us to. He was not stopped and he will not be stopped. That is the message here. The church, listen, is a movement of God. It is the continuing work of Jesus Christ on earth to bring hope and healing to the nations. One of the underlying themes of the book of Acts is God wins. His power prevails over human and demonic opposition no matter how severe it gets. And this movement that we are a part of is something that is a unique privilege in this unique time in human history. It is a movement of God. We are His people. We are a part of His plan to bring this message. And since we go with Him, we can be assured that we will not be stopped. And I mean by that, not ultimately. Yes, they may take our lives. Yes, they may take our freedoms. Yes, they may take our possessions. They may take a lot of stuff from us. But you want to know what they can't take? The saving message of Jesus Christ. That message will go forth no matter what they do to us. It is a supernatural message with supernatural means because of a supernatural Savior. That means that even though we may face incredible opposition, painful consequences, humiliating backlash, and though it may appear, it may appear at times we are actually losing the battle, victory for the church is certain because victory in Christ is already accomplished. Courageous Christianity is only possible because we know and believe in a conquering Christ. And because we follow a conquering Christ who conquered sin, who conquered death, who conquered Satan, we know for a fact that he will not be stopped and we will not be stopped. He leads the charge for us, doesn't he? We follow him as he storms the gates of hell. Our strength and power, here's what's key, and we're going to kind of end on this note and prepare our hearts to celebrate communion. Our strength and power is not a result of our ability to do these things better. Let me make that very clear. 
This is not about grit and determination and look at me, I'm going to commit to doing these things and I'm, I'm determined that we will do these things in our own strength, and our own power. Our strength and power is found in keeping our eyes on the one who did these things perfectly. All of these commitments are grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel reminds us that our confidence is not in self, but our Savior. He is the one who is adequate. The gospel reminds us that we need not fear. The greatest enemies have been overcome. The greatest victory is already ours, the cross conquered. The gospel reminds us that the world must hear the hope of salvation and that God has indeed spoken. The cross screams that God is not silent about sin and salvation and neither should we be. The gospel reminds us that the power is not our own, but it is God's alone. He is supernaturally advancing his kingdom, and though our lives may be stopped, the message we proclaim and the God we declare will advance to the praise of his glory and his grace. The cross reminds us of our courageous Christ who suffered God's wrath in our place and was raised for our justification. 